0: On this episode of the Survival Dispatch podcast with Chris Heaven, I'm joined by Don Mann, former SEAL Team Six and survival expert, and we're discussing acquiring survival skills. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Don.
1: Uh, thank you, Chris. It's good to be here with you again.
0: Uh, so I see you've been doing some traveling lately. Uh, did it was it Belize you were in, or where were y'all? You know,
1: in the last couple of weeks, I've been to Belize and Panama, the country of Panama, Republican of Panama, New Hampshire, mountain climbing, Vermont mountain climbing, um, and South Carolina, and then Ohio for a bike race, and back to Virginia for a paddle race. You know,
0: uh, I don't know, it sounds like you're, you know, being not very energetic in your retirement, Don. <laughs> I enjoy it, you know, and, and I know a lot of people when they retire, they
1: just wanna do their hobbies. And I'm not really fully retired either yet. And I don't think I ever will be. But um, I'm not a golfer. And um, I don't play golf, which a lot of people in my age group do, I guess. But um, the things I've always liked doing, now I'm taking the time and taking them even more seriously than when I was younger. So it's, it's fun looking at it that way.
0: Yeah, that, that's great. So maybe for the benefit of our listeners uh, who haven't seen uh, content where you've been on, uh, you know, Survival Dispatch News and whatnot, kind of understand who Don Man is. Maybe give us the, the rundown from beginning to end of your career before we get into survival skills.
1: righty, Chris. Um, well, I joined the Navy as a teenager. My father is a very patriotic man, and he was a World War II vet and um, from the greatest generation. And he instilled this great sense of patriotism in us kids, us four children. And then um, I, I actually was gonna join the Marines at first. And for some reason the Marine recruiter didn't impress me. And I was just a know-nothing teenager. <laughs> uh, and that was before much was known about the SEAL teams. But then when I went to the Navy recruiter and heard about the SEAL teams, my life changed. It, it was the best course I've ever could've, I ever could have I could have ever taken. And it was the best decision of my life to go toward the SEAL route.
0: What, what in particular appealed to you, um, you know, to as from a SEAL team perspective?
1: Well, you know, I I like the physical activity. I've always been a physical type of person, so that's why I initially thought of the Marines, which is still a, also a very physical, demanding organization to be in. But when I heard and and learned more about the SEAL teams and the videos and seeing these guys running in the soft sand and carrying boats and doing log PT and parachuting and shooting and going all over the world and diving. I was 1000% certain that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah, it just, it just hit me. I, I was very lucky to have found that because I was really going nowhere fast. That, that That saved my life actually, I think. And I don't mean save in that sense. I mean, it directed my life in a way that it was a fulfilling, you know, path to take.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, we've known each other for a little while and, and I kind of know the background, but so when you went into the Navy, what happened? Did you go dr- into the SEAL team directly? I know the answer to the question, but I'd rather have you tell the story. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to go right to
1: SEAL team. I really had very little patience and I really didn't want to do anything else, but I had to, I had to go to boot camp, of course. And then I had to go to hospital Corman A school. It's called you had to have a rate, a rating, you had to have some sort of skill. Um, And so my skill was being a, a medic as a corpsman in the Navy, we call them okay. corman. So then the SEALs at that time didn't want brand new, fresh corpsman coming to Bud's. They wanted experienced corpsman. So I spent a little bit of time at a hospital working and working in the emergency room and intensive care unit and surgical ward and the medical wards trying to learn more about more than being a corpsman than what I learned in a school and then uh, the directive came out and the navy said okay every corpsman in the navy you have one or two choices if if you know it hits a fan you're going shipboard or you're going with the marines which way do you want to go I said I don't really want to go either I just want to be a seal they said well you could become a seal from one of these two areas shipboard okay. or marine pick one so I went back and I picked marines Oh, and the Marines, they sent me to uh, field medical school and, you know, in uh, Camp Pendleton, California. But then what they didn't tell me is now you have to serve 13 months with the Marines. <laughs> and I was thinking, you didn't tell me that. But uh, anyways, it was very enjoyable. I spent that 13 months with the Marines in Okinawa, Japan. And I was an athlete and I was a, a marathon runner and a triathlete and a runner, uh, 5K, 10K, you know, half marathons. And I was a bicycle racer. So the Marines were very, very happy to have me on board because I went all over the world racing with the United States Marine Corps shirt on, basically all over the world. So I was a paid athlete, basically. And in my mind, I was just preparing for BUDS because I knew the second I could, I was going to BUDS. And that's what I did after my 13 months in Okinawa.
0: So that's the second time you mentioned the acronym BUDS. And I know it's related to underwater demolition, but what's the acronym fully stand for again?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. I always say Buds. Uh, Buds is just the the name of the initial six months training you have to go through to be a SEAL. And it stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School. Gotcha. Six month course out in California in Coronado. And it's the toughest training in the military, in the free world.
0: Yeah. It's that uh, everybody that I've crossed paths with who's been a Navy SEAL has been the cream of the crop
1: thank you thanks it's where it's a great community and um you know not a day goes by i don't draw from lessons i i learned you know as a seal uh once i finished buds i was assigned to seal team one in coronado and my hope was that i'd go to seal team one which covered the west coast the west side of the world and i'd also go to seal team two which covered the eastern side of the world and then there was a SEAL team out there that not many people knew about, not even SEALs knew about. It was called SEAL Team 6. And it had just started. They were keeping it really, really quiet and hush. And I, I was hoping to get to SEAL Team 6. And my 21-year career, twenty-one year career, I did do all three. I spent time at SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, and SEAL Team 6 once as an enlisted man. And then I got commissioned as one warrant officer. I went back to SEAL Team 6 as a warrant officer. So I was very, very happy with my career in the SEAL teams.
0: So, you know, from a training perspective, obviously being the the toughest, as you mentioned, uh, the focus is not just demolition, right? Like the, the survival, you know, evasion type stuff, I have to assume was a big portion of what you did.
1: It was, you know, I actually thought it would have been a little bit more, to tell you the truth. You know, Chris, what, and I look forward to talking to you about this more, but on visualization, I mean, it helped me get through BUDS. It helped me get through all these type of challenges I faced throughout my life. But I visualized that how hard bud was going to be, how cold those swims were going to be. But I also visualized the survival portion of it and the survival portion like, boy, are we going to have to go out like four or five, 10 days without food and shelter and water, how's that gonna happen? Because I really didn't know much about BUDS really. It wasn't open source information like it is right now. And uh, the survival part of it wasn't necessarily gaining skills to survive as much as it was what I think now, and even back then, the most important part they instilled into us as young seals and young pre-seals at BUDS was developing and strengthening our combat mindsets what we call the combat mindset uh you don't even have to use the word combat it's just strengthening your mindset so at some point you know it's so strong you feel like you could put a k-bar knife in your mouth with just a pair of udt swimming shorts is what we wore and you can go attack the world and you'd be okay because your mind was so powerful that you knew you were going to win but with survival, it was the same thing. Survival is you, you get to the point, yeah, yeah, put me on this island, I'll stay here for a month, I'll get my own food and fish and and, and I'll, 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 I'll be able to get my shelter and my water. But uh to me, the most important part, as far as the survival element, came from strengthening our mindsets.
0: Yeah, interesting. It said, uh, you are what you think you know at yeah, at the yeah. end of the day yeah i mean and i don't want to go into my history too deeply but you know i competed you know globally world level in powerlifting world class level and in the 12 weeks leading up to any type of championship you you play through it in your mind countless times visualizing it and it's not just when you get on the bench to do reps it's you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thinking you know go through the same routine steps over and over again to get consistent and good results sort of thing. So, yeah, mind mind is definitely absolutely critical. So tell me where in this state just because um, I've mentioned to you before, we're not we're not preachy when it comes to fitness and diet and stuff like that. Those are personal decisions. People can make them on their own. But obviously, fitness and conditioning, Plays a huge role in your ability to survive, and and you had this l- the rule of one thousand a day, uh, for lack of a better term. Refresh my memory: where did that fall into your training, and what was the thousand you know thing a day?
1: Well, the thousand, the number of thousand was just an arbitrary number I came up with. But the reason I came up with it is because I wanted to be a seal. And That's the only thing I wanted in life, and so I was in boot camp. And Navy boot camp is not very challenging. Actually, other than the Marine Corps, um, Navy and Air Force boot camp are not challenging at all. The Army is more challenging and the Marine Corps is most challenging when it comes to boot camp. Okay. But I, I was really, really training hard before I went to boot camp. And when I got to boot camp, I realized the training was very, very easy. There wasn't anything to it. And they, they knew I wanted to be a seal and I took the seal test and I passed it. Then they made me the physical director, petty officer there in boot camp. So I was able to exercise with the guys who needed more exercise, but I still wasn't getting the workouts I I wanted and needed. So I just thought to myself, I'm going to do a thousand of something every day. And it was a really good idea. It sounds extreme. But when you look at it, it's just a couple hours a day. And when you're done with boot camp, you're sitting around the barracks, shining shoes or, or writing letters or doing something. You, you have hours at your, your, your fingertips to spend on what you want to do. So one day I'd do a thousand push-ups. And if we had a 15-minute break, I'd go do 200 push-ups. If, we had, you know, if I got up earlier before anybody else, I'd do like a couple hundred push-ups. If I had watch in the middle of the night, a four-hour watch. I was able to do hundreds and hundreds of push-ups. So I just pick a number and it was a thousand. And I picked for every day in boot camp, I did a thousand of something, a thousand sit-ups, a thousand crunches, a thousand flutter kicks. The hardest one was when I got under the rack, the t- two bunk beds, you know, a bunk bed, yeah. the real weight, I got under to do a thousand bench presses with the bed press. <laughs> now for you, bench pressing, that would be nothing because the weights you would lift. But um I was just going after endurance, and then I measured the tiles in the floor, and I counted how many tiles there were going around all the bunk beds in that barracks, and then I did the math, and I figured, well, if I, I wonder how far it would be if I ran 300 laps around the inside of the the barracks, yeah. And I got a 17 mile run in, in wow. one night. You know, I went till like two in the morning, but. Uh, I loved, I love thinking like that. And basically that was developing a a mindset. Like, yeah, I can do a thousand a day. It was just my mindset. I I wasn't some big, strong guy at all, but I had the attitude that I could do it. And and that's what got me through that. Yeah. And and everything else I've done in my life that was challenging after.
0: Yeah. I I was going to say, I think that's a pretty common, uh, you know, characteristic amongst people who succeed is that they know they've got to put the work in. They're not afraid of failure and looking from the outside in people think oh well you know that person's just genetically predisposed or they're you know are fortunate gifted whatever the case may be when in reality you know like from an athletic standpoint you know this you've competed a ton for everything that you've won you lose five or ten you know and and you fail forward as a result of losing those right and i think the interesting part about your mindset before we get into survival skills is that Most people feel that they're competing against other people. And that's not the case. We have no control over anybody else. We can't control what they're gifted with from a, you know, genetic standpoint. We can't control what their training looks like or any of that stuff. We can only control ourselves. So in my mind, whenever you're competing in any athletic endeavor, you're competing against yourself because that's all you have control of sort of thing. And once you get that mindset in place, you stop expending precious, you know, bandwidth mental bandwidth on other people you just concentrate on your own stuff and every time you fail well you you back up you take a different way different tactic until you find a way to get over under around or through that block wall right
1: oh absolutely i could see how you really had to think that way in the sports you were competing in and for me i think basically my first running race was the Boston Marathon, 26.2 mile run. No kidding! I, I wasn't even a runner, and I wasn't. And, and a friend of mine who has racing motorcycles as a kid, and I wanted to become a pro motorcycle rider is how I got into sports in the first place.
0: Interesting. He,
1: he said to me, "He said, if you want to go pro in motocross racing, you better start running. And if you want to get motivated at running, pick out a running race." And I said, I didn't know they had running races. Who, how boring is that? Right. Said, well, they, have them, they have them. And we lived in Connecticut. And he said, there's one coming up in a couple months. I said, where? He said, in Boston in April on Patriot State. It's called Boston Marathon. And I said, well, how, how long is that race? He said, it's 26.2 miles. Now, we were just teenagers in high school. Okay. I said, 26.2 miles? People don't run that far. He said, yeah, they do it all the time. And what I did, Chris, I got this book. He gave me this book, Boston or Bust. And I read this book, This the last chapter was on Boston Marathon, and it talked about all these people, young people, old people, people with uh, prosthetic limbs, people with cancer, cancer survivors, and people who had organ transplants, and all these stories about all these people who were able to run 26.2 miles. Now, I wasn't a runner. I'd never ran in school or in high school or anywhere. And um, I was thinking, well, why can't I just put one leg in front of the other and run? All I have to do is promise myself not to quit and not to stop walking, just run 26.2 miles. I had no idea what it was going to feel like. (laughs) And um, I, I figured I should be able to do that. I'm a young, healthy guy. I don't have prosthetic limbs. I don't have any bad diseases or anything. And, and that's how I ran my first race, which was Boston Marathon. But it was like you said, I didn't go out there to win. All I did was, the goal was to finish it. And I did finish. And the time, in my opinion, was really slow. And I had no concept what slow or fast meant in a marathon at that point. But it was three hours and 44 minutes. And I got to the finish line, and I was sick, and I needed an IV. And But that day, I thought, I'll go do another one. I'll just do it faster. And I wasn't gonna to try to win it, but I wanted to knock off ten minutes. And I thought I could start training, and and I did this for like thirty-six months. I did thirty of these marathons. Holy cow! And some of them were ultras—you know, hundred k's, fifty k's, fifty milers. And every my I'd set up a goal, a macro goal, and that macro goal would be okay. The first one is just finish a marathon. Once I finish that. That came down to the micro goal level where the next macro goal had to be, okay, now you have a time to go after. You have to break three hours, for instance. And so to hit that macro goal, I had a a ladder to climb of other micro goals I had to do to get to that three-hour marathon. Once I'd get to the three-hour marathon, okay, the next macro goal, 250, got to break 250, which is to qualify for Boston, two hours and 50 minutes. So I'd have to do a 10K this fast. half marathon this fast, I had all these micro goals, I had to accomplish to reach that macro goal. And um, in, in three years time, I was able to knock almost an hour off the marathon time. But then the marathon started seeming simple. And it seemed to me like this is just, you know, it's going to be a couple hours I'm running and what else am I going to do? So I started paddling, like one marathon I paddled throughout the whole night to get to the start line. Then I ran the marathon. And there are other marathons, I'd finish the marathon, go for a bike ride till the next day. And I started adding things to the marathon and the, the, the longer runs, you know, those usually took eight to 12 hours to finish. So, um, but I, they weren't enough after a while. And that's why I was so happy when the sport of triathlons came about because the Hawaii Ironman, which was my first triathlon, It was a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, then a marathon. So the marathon was just a small part of it. And that was my new macro goal. Okay, now you're going to do an Ironman. So now you got to learn to swim. You got to do the swims this fast. You got to do the runs this fast. You got to do the bike ride in this fast. You got to do these bricks, which is bike run transitions. And then at one point, my last triathlon is well, if I could do an Ironman in less than a half a day, I'm going to do two Ironmans in a day. And by always having a macro goal that really, on the ground level, you're looking up at that macro goal thinking, that is impossible. People will say, you could never do that. I've been told that all my life. You can never be a SEAL. You can never do two Ironmans in one day. You can never climb Mount Everest. You can never, never, never. There's all these doubts but if you pick a macro goal that's way way up in the clouds there some way and just a series of micro goals that eventually lead up to that macro goal to me it's the only way to succeed at doing big big things and it was the only way i could have succeeded at doing the things that i'm i'm happy i i finished or tried to finish even
0: yeah a couple things come to mind i mean just a, an old adage is uh, you know you eat an elephant one bite at a time yeah, you know, that's so, so you can't knock the whole thing out at once. And and also, you know, the process that you just described is akin to uh, what we refer to as like block periodization and linear periodization. So block periodization would be OK for this, you know, 90 day block, let's say uh, the goal is to achieve X. And then in order to achieve X through the 12 weeks or so, that you know, is about 90 days. We have to achieve each of these things along the way. And to achieve each of those things along the way, we have to do this volume of work. So number of sets, number of weight, you know, reps uh, with specific weights, so on and so forth, if you're if it's a weight training thing. And that's interesting because that applies to almost everything across the board. It, you know, I frequently, you know, when I was a consultant, I asked people, what what's your exit strategy and they'd be well, well we're not thinking in those terms we've never thought in those terms and my response always was is that if you're going to start a business you should have your exit strategy in place before you start the business otherwise where's the end zone if you don't know where the end zone is how do you call the plays to march the ball down the field to score touchdowns sort of thing so you know, I think that that's really wise and where I see it applicable to, uh, you know, the conversation we're having with regards to survival skills, you know, there's all kinds of survival challenges, uh, whether it's in a, in a group setting or not. And there's this huge long list of, of survival skills that are perishable skills, uh, skills that once you acquire them, you have to use them or you'll end up losing them. Right. And so on that topic don like if you had to say capture like the top handful of survival skills what what would they be in your opinion uh you know chris and i when i knew i was going to come
1: on your show i put a lot of thought into this and i started thinking how i might answer a question like that and absolutely by far the number one top of the list answer to that question would be the mindset you know because you can get your mindset stronger each and every day you could be you know, broken up in a hospital, broken bones, you know, whatever, but your mindset can get stronger each and every day. And once you have that mindset that, okay, what I'm going to do, for instance, I'll use the terminology I was just using for the macro goals. My macro goal is I am going to learn to fish and I'm going to learn to clean and cut that fish. And I'm going to learn to cook that fish. That's going to be my macro goal. And also it could be another hobby It could be a fun hobby. It could be something I could do with my nephews or my grandkids or something. But just to have a macro goal. um, But the the first thing would be combat mindset or develop a strong mindset. Um, What I did, Chris, I was thinking a lot of hobbyists, you know, a lot of people who looking for a hobby, you know, there's a lot of things that come under the survival umbrella You know, gardening, purifying water, fishing, hunting, starting a fire, canning, doing map and compass training. A lot of those skills that come under survival umbrella are also fun hobbies. And uh, if somebody was interested in survival, and I know more and more people are becoming interested in survival now because of the way the world is looking, um, I th- I would recommend looking at all the things that come under that survival umbrella and pick one as a hobby. And then for that macro goal, okay, I'm going to learn to garden. I might just make this little box garden. I'm going to put outside. I'm going to grow tomatoes and peppers. I'm going to learn how to garden. And maybe I'll learn how to can after that. But you are so right. They're all perishable skills. Survival training, like almost all types of training, it's a perishable skill set. If I could circle back to a question I didn't fully answer with you is when you asked me about the survival training and BUDS, uh, what I did and what I got a very, very huge fascination about was survival as soon as I got out of BUDS because BUDS was over, graduated BUDS, but now I wanted to know more about survival. So the day I graduated BUDS, I checked into SEAL Team 1 and I applied for SEER school so I can go to SEER school. And awesome. SEER school, is, and people are saying, what are you thinking about? You just got out of BUDS. What do you want to go to SEER school for? <laughs> I and mean, you're starving, you're, you're cold, you're, you're surviving on whatever you can find to eat. You're going to be what they call tortured. You're going to be harassed, I'll, I'll say. And I said, no, I want it. I really, really want that. And SEER school, S-E-R-E, is survival, evasion, resistance, escape school. So they teach you how to survive in the land. And they teach you how to evade being captured. And they teach you how to resist capture. And they teach you how to um, resist, evade, um, eat, sleep, find shelter, find water, it's everything you need survival, evasion, resistance. And then if you get caught, it's how to escape. And um, I love that school. My God, I really, really, really loved it. And I was, I was the honor man of my class. And um, I would have went to it back to back to back. I loved it so much. And then I've applied for it again for the gentleman's course, which is what happens if you're like SEAL team six or a pilot or something. And you're overseas in Batman territory, and they capture you how to evade and a and a kind of like uh not so much being in the jungle and being held down on a waterboard or anything, but how to use your mind and how to resist giving away information, giving away information on your other fellow captives, and how to always look for an opportunity to, to escape. So some of the best training I ever had was survival training, survival, evasion, resist, escape school. And I've I've done both forms of it that we teach, that they teach in our military. And then I ran the jungle school in Panama for four years and we took survival training and brought it up about 10 notches and really made it extreme. What kind of made it, I made these courses were almost a month long, but it was like BUDS training combined with survival training. And then in the Philippines, I went through the just survival school jungle environmental survival training and that was probably some of the best survival training i've ever been through because you're with these they're they're called indian the old indian headhunters they used to hunt people and okay. the and put the heads on the post back in the old days but uh these these negrito indians they were called in the philippines you go through the jungle with them you you felt like you're going through a mall they said yeah this leaf here that'll stop infection this one here this prevents uh, blood loss. This one here, if you have a sore throat, just rub it on here. When you go into the jungle with them, they show you everything you can eat, everything you would use for salve and medications and swelling and poor eyesight. They that, that jungle was like a store to them. And that was fascinating to learn how much there was to know about survival through the people who, in my opinion, are the best in the world at it. Yeah, And then, that, so is then,
0: fa- that is fascinating, Don. It really is. Oh,
1: They they are so remarkable. And then um, I became a training officer and I was asked to teach uh, training. And I wrote down all the survival training courses I put on. I taught desert survival out on the West Coast SEAL teams, Arctic survival, SEAL team two, jungle survival down in Panama, urban survival all over the place, mountain survival I did on my own because I, I became a mountaineer. And C, survival, I taught at teams one and two. And so there's uh survival could be specific depending on your terrain or your environment. But then I go back to what I started out with. It all starts with mindset. Mindset and then pick a goal, pick a goal. Okay. And you can go through survival training courses. They got them all over the place in this country. Uh, the, I've been to a couple. I've actually... Um, I take a lot of government folks out on trips and I just put them through some desert survival last year. And it was really, really great. You know, desert survival, we, you know, they made shelters. They learned how to start fires, how to find water and how to eat and what not to eat, of course. And, um, and, and, and jungle survival, there's so much out there in the jungles. When I was in uh, Panama a couple weeks ago, just being in the jungles, they just couldn't believe how much there was the fruits and the vegetables, everywhere you looked, it was there. And then urban survival, that's probably where most people are interested in hearing about Agreed. nowadays. Yes. Because urban survival, of course, you don't have the plant life and the and those type of things you have to worry about. But urban survival is really your life, it's surviving, surviving people and surviving, you know, people who who you know, are willing to take your life for either the crime or just, you know, for whatever reason. But urban survival, living in a city or near uh, an urban area, it's dangerous. I, I, I feel much, much, much safer living out in the woods or the mountains or the desert or the jungle than I would living in a city, especially these some of these cities in our country that we've lost or are losing. I, I don't feel safe in the cities at all. And, um, yes. I think urban survival, it's the biggest, uh, biggest threat to us right now and what people need to know.
0: Yeah, we did some polling a while ago and, uh, urban survival was the number one topic that people wanted more content from survival dispatch on. And I would agree that it's, you know, it's a lot of it's predicated on self-defense and those sort of things. Right. So, uh, there's a very famous individual by the name of Tony Blauer and, he has all kinds of great credentials when it comes to martial arts and so on and so forth. But he teaches the mindset piece that you keep referring to. And he's the only person that I'm aware of that has tackled things from that perspective. So he has this thing called D123. So so D1 is to detect a threat or a problem early enough that you can avoid it that's the best thing the best fight is the fight that you avoid right well sometimes you can't always detect something in, in advance so the second thing d2 in his world is to devalue yourself as a target and i'll speak more to that in just a second and then the final step is to d3 is to defend yourself if it comes down to that sort of thing right so he concentrates on call it the 10 to 20 seconds before the shit hits the fan before there's an altercation and he, he's absolutely brilliant so let me give you an example only because you and i uh we did a episode of survival dispatch news last year on being gas station ready and so here's a great story from from tony blauer on that that's really rel- related to urban survival as well So 10 years ago, this girl took one of his workshops, a one day workshop, and it was focused on all the things that I just mentioned. And she was on the phone. She had left work late. It was after dark and her car starts beeping. She's low on fuel. So she's talking on the phone. She pulls into a gas station, hangs up the phone, and all of a sudden realizes she's not in a very good neighborhood. And so she thinks, well, I'll just put a couple bucks of fuel in my car and get out of here sort of thing. Cause she was on empty. And so she, as she gets out of her car, she spots these three bad guys who have taken an interest in her. This is uh, 10 years after she took this workshop with, with Tony. So she's in D2, right? Like she was not able to, she didn't detect it in advance so she could avoid it. So now she's in D2 where the goal is to devalue herself as a target. So she pretends to swipe her credit card quickly in the gas pump. Then she pretends to make a phone call to her bank or credit card company. And, you know, pardon my French, but our audio podcast isn't as, uh, you know, let's say, uh, you know, purified as our videos are. Her exact word, well, not exact words, but she used a whole bunch of cuss words. And she basically was pretending to speak to this person on the phone saying, I paid my fucking bill turn my goddamn fucking credit card on I'm my I've got no cash my car's out of fuel and now my damn card shut down you assholes I paid this bill last week turn my freaking card on and the three guys who were walking towards her just walked away her car was worth nothing because it had no fuel on it she had no cash on hand and her credit card didn't work so she completely devalued herself as a as a target, and. So she got a couple bucks worth of gas. She got back on the road. She called Tony Blower late at night to say, uh-huh. you won't believe what just happened. And she said, all of those things that, you know, you taught us all those years ago in that workshop, you know, were top of mind, came to mind. So um, I, I agree. And, and so if people want to acquire mindset, like get the right mindset, you, you know, both of us can attest to the fact that it's not an easy thing to do on your own unless you have a certain personality, you know? And, but for those people who maybe need some assistance developing, in your words, a combat mindset or a self-defense mindset, I'll give Tony a shameless plug. He has all kinds of workshops. Some of them are online, some of them are in person. you know and there, there's everything is is broken down into systems in his world. so it, it's easy to understand and easy to get you know results by repeating these formulas over and over again. So he has one that's called the human weapon system and it's 10 modules takes 10 hours. You can do it, you know, 10 days in a row, an hour a day, you can do it in a weekend. You can spread it out over a couple of months or whatever. And he teaches all of these principles with regards to the D1, D2, D3. It's fascinating stuff. It's fascinating because of the mental aspect. Um, you'll get a kick out of this. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to, uh, that'd be interesting. Well, when early on, when I met Tony, he he said I made a comment something along the lines referring to muscle memory. And he said there's no such thing, and I said well wh- what do you mean there's no such thing? And he said well he says if you had a pistol in your right hand and your right arm got cut off, can you shoot me? And I said well of course not. He said well if there was such a thing as muscle memory, then the muscles will pull the trigger and you'd be able to shoot me he said when you're practicing stuff you're not it's got nothing to do with muscle memory you're burning neural pathways and so it's like these shortcuts are being wired into your brain that if you encounter x do y it was kind of interesting because you know i thought back to you know playing football and i was captain of the team i played offense defense all special teams never came off the field and you know, I wasn't like the, the best football player in the world, but it was pretty decent. And I'm not tall enough to drop into pass coverage. So I frequently played rush end. So that would be contain the play. Don't let anybody get to the sideline, own a gap or blitz the quarterback. Okay. And multiple times based on the cadence that was being called, I would start changing our play on defense and I'd be all, a gap right side, a gap right side sort of thing. And I remember quarterbacks and running backs looking at me thinking, how does he know this sort of thing? And and it was from paying attention and seeing the same thing over and over and over again. I would have thought in terms of it, you know, it's muscle memory, right? Like you've seen this. So you just react as second nature. And it wasn't. It's like, according to Tony, he's right. It's a neural pathway. I've seen this. So therefore, I know this is going to happen. Football is a, is a game of speed, right? It doesn't matter how big and strong you are. If you're not quick enough to get to the play, you're not in the play. End of story so for the for the football player especially like a linebacker or a rush end when you've seen the same play a thousand times before you don't have to stop and think of what you need to do you just automatically react to it right and and you've met mike sterling our eod expert and whatnot he frequently says, "You know, human beings do not rise to the occasion; they fall to their level of training." And it's the same thing. You know, it's, it becomes that second nature thing. So, didn't mean to hijack you there, Don. No, I that's so
1: interesting, Chris. Said. Super interesting.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more as far as your your you know your point that mindset is everything. But in reality, unless you uh, play organized sports for a coach who excels at, you know, helping you develop your mindset. You go to Seer school, you know, you get in the field training like you had. Uh, I don't know anybody outside of Tony Blower who teaches mindset for this stuff, you know, as far as survival is concerned, he, he teaches mindset, Don, he, he, they've got firearms courses, they've got hand-to-hand combat courses, but he said, here's the deal you can sit and practice a martial arts move, you know, for eternity, fights never unfold the way you think they're going to unfold. So it's, it's not you memorizing and practicing just the physical, it's recognizing the threat and being able to react to it without having to stop and think losing that half step, like a football player loses a half step, boom, they're out of the place sort of thing. It's, it's a fascinating to- topic and subject. And it's not something that I know of anywhere else you can go doesn't mean that there's no one else who can do it but tony blauer is way ahead of his time he's been teaching this stuff since 1980 and he, he truly is like a, in a league of his own when it comes to that stuff so We've got our mindset squared away, Don. And, you know, the hardest part, right? Because the the body will follow the mind. You know, if you think you're going to fail at something, you will absolutely fail at. No ifs, ands, or buts. If you think you're going to succeed, it doesn't guarantee you're going to succeed, but at least you stand a chance. So mindset out of the way, what are the next handful of, of skills? And I should mention that you have a TV show called Surviving Man, where you put people through these horrendous exercises that are, you know, physically taxing and you have to have skills and, you know, it's incredibly demanding, uh, whether it's based on your experience as a Navy SEAL or surviving man or all of the personal, you know, endeavors that you've engaged in over the years, what are the top handful of skills beyond mindset, like physical skills that you would recommend that people acquire uh, to be, and here's the funny thing, I'll, I'll end on this and let you pick it up what we refer to as perishable survival skills, our grandparents and great grandparents, that was just life. What they, it was just everyday life for them, you know, to, right. to yeah, you're
1: right. yeah. it, you
0: know, to, to slaughter chicken and, yeah. and process it everyday life, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I'll let you take it from here. Now.
1: Yeah. Now survival, <laughs> this new generation is, if they don't have a cell phone, my God, how am I going to survive? <laughs> um So I think, and I taught my nine-year-old grandson this in a car drive, and then we went out and practiced it, to know, always know where northeast, south, and west are, you know, to know how to navigate, and to have an idea where you are, and where north is, where east is, and where south is, and where west is, and from that, you could you could learn a lot. You could learn a lot. All you have to do is know Okay, the sun comes up on the east, okay, good. Now when I see the sun coming up and it's before noon time, I know that's easterly. So if I'm looking easterly direction, I know west is behind me. Okay, great, so where's north? Well, with my right arm out and my left arm facing west, north is right in front of me. And then you can take it to the next step. Okay, I'm looking out of my back deck right now and I see shadows of trees. So the sun is hitting those trees and putting a shadow close to me. And it's noon time, just afternoon time. So what that means to me, west is away from me, west, the sun is going down in the west, it's putting a shadow up on that tree, up on my deck. And now I can know what northeast, south and west are by looking at shadows. And that's, it's a good feeling to know where Northeast, South and West are. People don't use maps anymore, but if you're out in the woods, if you're in the urban area, and you just know you know the highways to the North and you've got to get North and you don't have a GPS, You know, everyone says, I have a GPS, but those don't always work as we all know. But just, I think um, understanding basic Northeast Southwest and where that is. And then when you see the sun go down, okay, I know that's West, I'm looking West. So behind me is East okay, great. So I know to my right, 90 degrees is north. And that's fun. And there's a lot of fun survival games you can do with just understanding map and compass. And I think that would be on top of my list. But if somebody didn't have any clue really what the concept of survival mindset is, and they didn't really know what skills they needed, you know, there are some very, very entertaining, true to life stories that made terrific movies and one was unbroken Mm. and unbroken i mean he he was just a he was just a runner he became a marathon runner he went to the olympics became a world war ii hero but what he did he survived on a life raft without any training longer than anybody in the world ever did he's fighting off sharks with a paddle but the story is incredible even if you weren't interested in survival yet but you saw what he was able to do And he's able to grab a seagull and just rip into that seagull and eat the seagull. But he survived at sea longer than anybody to that point in time had survived. And then there's Into the Void, an incredible mountaineering story where a couple guys were climbing down down South America, and they got stuck on a mountain, and one of them broke his leg and fell through this deep crevasse. And um, when I was growing up, before I even knew I loved the concept of survival, I liked it because of his attitude. I didn't know it was called Mindset was Papillon. Mm. I mean, Papillon. Yeah. So you could pick out movies and if nothing else, get the entertainment value out of it. And then Everest, of course, the 96 disaster in Everest is pretty much why I wanted to climb Everest. I wanted to face some of those challenges. And um, so you could really pick out some good books and good movies and good documentaries on what normal everyday people without any survival training. They've never had any survival training, never in the military or anything. But you could see what ordinary, everyday people can do uh, without training just because of how they handle the situation. And I hate to keep using the word mindset, but because of the mindset they had and how they survived only because of that.
0: Yeah, un- the movie Unbroken is a is a phenomenal story, a phenomenal testitude to the human will to survive. That uh, was absolutely incredible. Uh, so we've got mindset uh, briefly discussed navigation and it, you know I point out that I've read a number of articles in recent years stating that people somewhere you know mid to late 30s and younger uh, generally speaking don't know how to read a paper map and so you know that's a problem but further to your guidance you mentioned at the one point you know that, that this is east and this is west and you know therefore. I know that, you know, in this case, it would be north would be behind me and that that's where the highway is. It's not 100% foolproof, but it's pretty accurate, especially here in the southeast. Every county road intersects a state road. Every state road intersects an interstate. So if you can find your way to a county road, regardless of which direction you go in, you will eventually hit a state road. And if you get on the state road, regardless of which direction you go, chances are pretty good you're going to hit an interstate. So you'll find your way back to civilization one way or another. Um, so, mm-hmm. again, it, it's not 100% consistent, especially in the northeast where a lot of the, the roads were, you know, built years before we had the interstate system and so on and so forth. But uh, in the southeast here in particular, it's pretty darn consistent that, you know, those road things. So mindset, navigation. What what what's the next thing in your mind that would be an important skill to acquire? Maybe go out
1: and make it a fun learning experience for some children or you know relatives you have, and uh, learn to start a fire without a lighter, and um, or even with a lighter. Start off with a lighter and learn to start a fire, and maybe use dryer lint. Why you keep a little bit of dryer lint in your backpack? Because if I need it, that sure is a good one. Just a spark and start a fire there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, how to Good look point. for dry, tender—you know, just little kindling—and then how to put the bigger sticks on top and maybe make a little teepee, and maybe that little bit of drier lint you have underneath, and just one flick of a lighter if you have it you can start a fire that could last for days if you needed to. But just fire starting and water purification. Some people like the tubes—you know, the water purification tubes and the pumps—but um, I never relied on any of those. And I've drank black water with dead animals on it um, with just chlorine or iodine tablets. And I've never been sick. And so really, if you have a backpack or go bag, like we talk about all the time, in a go bag, maybe have a little fire starting material in there, just a little small bag, maybe with a big lighter and some, some drier lint. And maybe over here, um, keep, keep a compass there. Why not just have a handheld compass? And then, so you have fireside, and you have Compass uh, for water purification, just have a little iodine or chlorine tablets there. So what we do is we would have a bottle on our right side and a bottle on our left side when we're doing these 100 mile and 500 mile races and okay. this extreme terrain. And on my right side, right is right, I could always drink from this. But if I go past a creek or a swamp or a lake or the or anything, I can take the bad bottle, scoop up the water, Put in two tablets, and in one half hour, this bottle is ready to drink. Then I switch them. The empty bottle goes here. That way you never have to stop. If you're on the move and you're on the go, if it's a race, you're on the clock. If you're out there in survival and you have to get from point A to point B quickly, you don't have to spend a lot of time pumping up water or, or trying to get some good water. You can, get clean, you can get dirty water. You can purify it with iodine or chlorine. And that would be something fun to do, too. Just go out to a river and see what water you like better. You know, and uh, some people like putting a little tang in it or Kool-Aid just so it tastes a little bit better. But those things in gardening, gardening, it's a great survival skill that could be a hobby, fishing and hunting, we've talked about, and canning once you get a little bit at beyond. But I think uh, map and compass, gardening, purifying water, fishing, hunting, starting fires, And then you could even get to the point of building shelters, little lean-to shelters, lean-to with just dried branches on it. Maybe you have a poncho liner or a little piece of um, waterproof material that you keep in your go-bag, and that could be the walls for that shelter. And uh, when you go through survival, if you take a survival training course, and those are a lot of fun, Tony Nestor is the last course. Actually, Tony and Nestor and I uh, we wrote a book together on survival training, and he's a he's a desert survival expert, but uh, he helped me out a lot with that book. I learned a lot through Tony, and I've taken government folks through Tony's training. He's out in Arizona, but he's another guy. You can walk through the desert with him, and things you might just walk by and not even notice, he'll look at it, and he'll see it as food, or he'll see it as a potential you know, life-threatening animal or 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 insect or something that can cause you a lot of harm. And he knows where to look and he knows where to find the food and the fish if there's a creek or something nearby. And he knows how to build a shelter. And what he does for fun is he'll go off for a week by himself without anything. And he just practices survival. He he loves survival. He's a That's survivalist. Amazing. Yeah. And he he's really, really I mean, you could talk to people who understand survival and know survival techniques and things, but a guy like him, he he lives it. He does that for his vacations. He doesn't do it with anybody else either. He just goes alone. And he will say, yeah, the last one I went, I went two weeks just off on my, my own and I brought nothing. <laughs> uh, so there are people like that, but we don't have to really be like that, but we can learn a lot from those type of people through documentaries, through books they've written, and uh, like I mentioned, these nice, uh, these fascinating movies that Papillon inspired me more than any other movie in my life, I think, just because it was, you know, what he went through and how he kept going and kept going and kept going.
0: I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of pressures on their time. You know, they've got work, they've got to look after a house, they've got a honey-do list, they've got kids. And it's hard for them to break away and take, uh, you know, in-person training. Uh, but if they do, in addition to the gentleman you just mentioned, uh, Mike Glover, Fieldcraft Survival, is a, is an amazing choice to take hands-on training. Georgia Bushcraft in Watkinsville, Georgia, uh, largest bushcraft event uh, in the country each year in the fall. They have a spring event and then they have monthly workshops uh casey is the gentleman's name owns the property and puts that on amazing place to learn from subject matter experts they have all kinds of breakout sessions where you can learn a lot of fantastic things back to water of course water filtration and purification is an extremely complex subject extremely complex because you're dealing with multiple contaminants sort of thing right so i'm not a big fan of of the life straws uh especially you know you're putting your face down into water that may be contaminated and the bacteria will crawl up the side of that straw in the blink of an eye and i know people who've used life straws and have drank water that you know was turbid and instead of moving and they they got sick you know and then they had to take you know some medicine after the fact um so i I like obviously the the tablets that you spoke of that's that's a really easy way to do it doesn't taste very good most of the time but it's it's better than dying without water right um i like the grail filters myself Uh, they're pretty good and they remove a lot of stuff i have a lot of concern these days over forever chemicals they're everywhere now so the chemicals have no half-life and, you know, our municipal water supplies are polluted with them hundreds, if not thousands of times, safe levels right here in Ormond Beach, Florida. We've we've had dozens of dogs. None of them have ever had cancer. We've lost one to cancer. We have two more have cancer. Our vet's a good friend of ours just lost two dogs to cancer. And I've been telling them for a while, the only common thread here is the water supply in Ormond Beach. And sure enough, they're, they're the PFAS, Forever Chemicals are uh, hundreds of times the safe level here in ormond beach highly carcinogenic stuff right so you know grail filters remove a a lot of the pfas stuff you know bacteria viruses all that kind of stuff but filtration is taking solid particulates out of water and then there's an intermediate step where you get into reverse osmosis where solid particulates that have dissolved they're never fully dissolved but you can hit them with ultrasonic waves and drive them through a a bladder essentially right which is the best way to remove any type of chemicals especially the pfas stuff but that's that's the you've got filtration then you could put say reverse osmosis in the middle and then you've got purification and purification of course is related to all the nasty stuff that could potentially be in the water so i would agree that that the tablets you know are probably the quickest and easiest way to deal with that stuff but it, I don't think it doesn't taste great. You know, we've, no. we've and the last thing before we get off the water is that, you know, we get sent a ton of products at Survival Dispatch to test. I can tell you right now, the vast majority of stuff never makes it on to any of our channels. Uh, we don't have any desire to hurt somebody's business, but if their product falls short, we're not going to showcase it. We're not going to speak in favor or against it sort of thing. We just, you know, move sure. it to the side sort of thing a lot of water treatment products are snake oil. They're absolute garbage. Um, There are some rather large countertop filters that are stainless steel that shall remain unnamed that are very expensive. And we've tested multiple models and best case scenario, they dropped the alkalinity ever so slightly, but didn't do much of anything to anything beyond that sort of thing. So water filtration water purification complex subject make sure that you do your homework before you buy that stuff and you know it it's a it's a great thing from a survival training perspective i would add that you know in addition to the the hands-on training that if people just can't afford the time to break away then take some online training there's plenty of online courses we have some coming up on survival dispatch uh, insider uh memberships but it While being in person is better, doing it online is better than nothing. You know, to Mm -hmm. at worst case scenario, you're seeing somebody else, you know, perform a skill and you know with steps on how you can replicate it. That that's still valuable stuff. So if we don't like, if we look at it here, we you know we've got mindset is paramount because if you think you're going to fail, you will, and then we've got you know, being able to get water, rule of threes, typically three days maximum without water. You mentioned navigation, you mentioned fire, um, and then you started to touch on shelter. Building
1: shelter or finding shelter, one or the other. Yes, shelter that can, uh, you know, depending where you are, shelter might be something you need right away if you're up in the Arctic or Antarctic area of Alaska, you know, but you always need the water, like you said, three days, you need food eventually, but you can go a little longer without food, but sometimes shelter is something you need immediately, especially in stormy cold weather where hypothermia or hyperthermia can get you. Um, and there, if you can find shelter, great, but if not, you, you should know how to, to make shelter or to find the best place to make shelter too, to keep you out of the elements as best as you can. And if you're in a hostile area, you have to stay out of the elements and stay out of view of other people. Um, if you're not in a hostile area, you might want to be in view so you could be rescued. For instance, a plane crash or or a boat or something mishap, So you want to be in view. Um, there are some survival games out there. I'm sure you're aware of, Chris. It's where, so if you crash in a plane and you're in this country, what's the first thing you do? And they make a game of it, you know, and, and different countries, different terrain, different environments have different answers, but it's a lot of fun and a lot of team building. Um, events that you see around the country even if it's a corporate team event sometimes they'll they'll throw in one of those games and it it gets a group of three or four or five people thinking well no I better get water first should I stay with the aircraft or should I walk two days back where I know we went over a river and there's a lot of good discussion that goes back and forth and those are online courses that, that people like taking too but big corporate team building events and leadership building events they they often incorporate those just because they're fun and it gets people to think yeah
0: i i just was thinking you know when you mentioned shelter and how you know you may need to take it with you or find it or build it or whatever the case may be um, all of our emergency preparedness kits have usgi ponchos every last one of them. So a great way to keep out of the elements, as you mentioned, to stay dry, but also easily convertible into a, you know, makeshift shelter, you know, yep. a simple tent, if nothing else. Don't choke Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah. just trying to think back on all the stuff here, but I think we've hit on all the big stuff. So we've got mindset as foremost, you know, we've got water, we've got navigation, food, shelter, um, I think that if somebody got some training in each of those areas, that the chance of their survival would go up quite a bit. And, you know, I mentioned to you offline, we're getting ready to launch Survival Dispatch Insider Memberships. And one of the perks, the, the values to being a member is we've put together a super comprehensive test that comes up with your survival prepper IQ and so you can take it it'll benchmark where you are at a, you know some point so if you're new to the survival prepping community maybe you score 20% but then you invest your time into learning from, by whatever means and 6 months later you take the test again and all of a sudden you know you're 32% so you move the needle you kept on going so i'm a big fan of of taking training from people but how do you keep those skills and how do you really tell how well you're doing? You know, everybody wants to know, how am I doing? Tell me how I'm doing and where could I improve? And that's why we developed the survival prepper IQ. There's some prepper quizzes out there. There's nothing as comprehensive as we've built that I found as far as taking an overall look at survival and prepping and what what is your score? Because, you know, you of all people know. But prepping isn't particularly hard. It's it's a matter of committing to spending a little bit extra money here and there on stockpiling stuff, stockpiling food, water, you know, ammunition, so on and so forth. But to be a survivalist, that's a whole whole other game, whole other level, and harder to develop skills and skills that you have to practice on a regular basis. So, uh, I think we've covered the bases. Don, is there anything else you'd like to offer before we wrap up? Well, Chris, I was, um,
1: because of clearance, the clearance I have, I've been off of social media for a long time, but now I'm able to get back on it a little bit. And what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is take your prepper course and put it online on for our people to send it out to folks too, because I think that's such an excellent idea of what you're doing and just the link so we can take them right to you. I think that'd be a fa- fascinating thing for people to see.
0: So you know we're really blessed at Survival Dispatch to have a network of people like yourself like high level performing people and you know, I didn't mention this offline but I'll mention it now so all of the people that we work with on a you know somewhat frequent basis like yourself will have complete unfettered access to the Survival Dispatch insider content tests videos courses everything that goes on behind the scenes because Here's an interesting thing that we can kind of wrap up on, Don, is the tech industry always comes full circle, always. So, you know, in the late 60s, 70s and 80s, IBM had this timeshare model where people could dial in with their, you know, extremely slow modems and they basically leased compute time on these mainframe computers, which in turn would spit the results out, right? Well, now everything software-wise, the vast majority of it is in the cloud. It's the exact same thing as IBM's timeshare model, okay? So, you know, our listeners have heard me say this before, but it's it's very relevant to the world we live in today. 1994, Tim Berners-Lee releases Netscape Navigator. That starts the advent of the World Wide Web, not the internet. The internet had already been around for a while. But the the web, meaning hypertext transfer protocol, started to take off. Nineteen ninety six, you got tens of millions of websites, and people start congregating in online forums with others who are interested in the same topic subjects and so on and so forth. Mid two thousands, like two thousand five, two thousand six, the mind share for forums started to decline. Didn't die, but it declined, and people started congregating at MySpace and Facebook and whatnot. Well, we've seen Meta, Facebook, Instagram, their numbers the past couple of years have been in pretty steep decline. It's happening to all forms of social media. And we do a ton of polling. And one of the number one things that our audience asked for, Don, was access to private member-only forums that's not censored by big tech, the government, or the mainstream media. And we're on the precipice of some unprecedented and very unconstitutional things getting ready to happen when it comes to suppressing medical information, like they did with, you know, that ivermectin, which is extremely effective against COVID and whatnot. Um, We're going to see a lockdown of information related to the 2024 election, you know, in, in attempts to suppress the truth. We're probably going to see the old Biden admin, because this is Obama's third term, we're going to see the old Biden admin declare a climate emergency and grant themselves all kinds of unconstitutional powers and whatnot. So, you know, if you're guilty of wrong think, whether you're an organization like Survival Dispatch or an individual, the opportunity to exchange that information is is already suppressed. It's going to become more suppressed. These uh, bad guys, they have a new saying you have the right to free speech, not free reach. So, you know, they basically feel that they can stop, you know, the amplification of your wrong think because you disagree with the party line, right? So that's another thing we're doing at Survival Dispatch is is that we're providing a walled garden, a safe haven, a safe harbor, whatever you want to call it, for those of us, you know, who used to be referred to as conspiracy conspiracy theorists but we sure have been right unfortunately about a lot of things in recent years but still being able to exchange information and those sort of things so like i said we'll make sure that you have full unfettered access to that don and would love to get your feedback by the way on the survival prepper iq um oh yeah
1: great i'll
0: definitely do that yeah we've, we've had a bunch of people weigh in on it and you know say you know get rid of this question it's not high value Change this question a little bit here. So it's more relevant. So we've got a pretty refined process. I believe at last count, we were at 95 questions. And again, it's a time commitment. Like your average person is going to take 30, 45 minutes to plow through it, but you get a true benchmark of where you stand with this stuff. And that gives you a direction to take now Uh, on, man, I better brush up or learn some of these other skills. Um, And while we're on this topic, I got a shameless plug, but I got to mention it. So, you know, when you're in the military and orders are passed down, you follow those orders. But when you go in, in the, you know, private communities, when you gather people, they typically devolve into politics. There's some people who are lazy, other people then resent them because they're doing the work. Um, You get too many chiefs, not enough Indians sort of thing, right? So we have less than zero desire at survival dispatch to you know promote MAGs, mutual assistance groups that are, you know, have an eye towards survival, you know, during and after a SHTF event. But we are putting together a network of survival dispatch insider members across the country who've passed a background check that's not given to us. All we need is a screenshot showing your name and that you have no criminal record you're not a registered sex offender and you go into this downloadable list of people emails phone numbers you know geographic location and if somebody finds themselves out of state and has an shtf event could be a flat tire you know on a back road where there's no AAA service or could be god forbid nuclear attack or something like that and how do you get home so we're building that into the, the insider memberships as well and that's uh, haven't seen anybody else do that. And it's I've not it. it's not necessarily something we invented. It was something people actually asked for. If I'm out of state and the shit hits the fan, who, who am I supposed to call to help get me home? And we thought, man, that's a, that's a great question. We didn't have an answer for it initially, but we think we got the answer now. So hmm. that's great. That's interesting. Yeah. So maybe what we'll do, Don, is <clears throat> after we get survival dispatch insider memberships out the door. I think we should have you back. Uh, You know, maybe we'll do a special episode of Survival Dispatch News, and we'll put it behind uh, the paywall for Survival Dispatch Insider membership so that we can discuss in unfettered terms, you know, the real deal on various things, whether it be ivermectin. And other stuff that the information that's being squashed, that's valuable information that people need to know about, you know, several billion people have been prescribed ivermectin since it was approved, you know, because they've been exposed to contaminants and water, you know, bacterial viral, that kind of stuff. And what the mainstream media and big tech did in suppressing that is unconscionable. The people lost their lives because of that. You know, they made fun of it saying, you know, you're not a horse. Don't take this stuff. Well, you know, what? it was developed for humans. Uh, initially, it's been prescribed billions of times. It's extremely safe. I know people who've been diagnosed with COVID and have taken it and three days later didn't have any signs. What's like, they beat it hands down. So they, they were giving it out in third world countries
1: in Africa on a weekly basis before way before COVID, just because of other, other, re, you know, ivermectin has been for so many other reasons. And there is uh, one country in in Africa, a a third world country, they were getting it weekly before COVID came out. When COVID did hit, other surrounding countries were hit pretty hard. But this one country that was giving it out weekly to its people, they didn't have a lockdown, they didn't wear masks or anything. They had one of the lowest rates of COVID anywhere in the world because of ivermectin only. Right. Right. Yeah, but we do our best to make sure that people don't understand, hear those stories. (laughs) Yes, we do.
0: (laughs) All right, Don, I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, Nice seeing you,
1: Chris. Nice being on the show with you, too. All right. Be safe, Don. Thanks, Chris.